2, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 13. We're in Genesis 13 this morning. Once again, we're, we're tracking our way through the life of Abraham, uh, Jacob, and Joseph um, in a desire to learn about the wisdom of our God in sanctifying us. We, we see God's wisdom on display in where he puts us in our life, and that causes us to grow in sanctification, and we see that in Abraham particularly today. We're going to read um, Genesis 13 as we get started. Genesis 13 says this, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife, and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, and silver, and in gold, and he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh. Now Lot, who was going with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while living together, for their possessions were so abundant that they were not able to live together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were living in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers." Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Then Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil and sinners exceedingly so against Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your seed can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and lived by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to Yahweh. Uh, before, before I get going, I just want to kind of um, do a little uh, experiment here. Sometimes I like to write in different literary genres. Sometimes I like to try to be a poet. Didn't go well. Sometimes I like to be a novelist also. Didn't go very well. But, uh, but today I'm going to try uh, to do a new genre for you. I'm going to try to give you a proverb 
a proverb. And, and by this proverb, I'm going to kind of sum up, sum up all of what I'm going to try to communicate to you today in this one proverb. So first I'm going to give you a little, a little proverb, a little, little jingle, a little happy jingle. And then I'm going to try to prove it to you, explain this proverb to you as we kind of work our way through this passage and understand what God wants us to learn from it. So here, here's the proverb. Ready? Ready? Here, here's the great proverb. I thought of it this morning. I'm really proud of it. I uh, hope you guys like it. Whew, here we go. All right, here we go. Ready? Uh, blessings will show your love. But flames will form your love. Blessings will show your love, but flames will form your love. Now don't look, don't look and define what you love, your faith, your love for God, by the times when everything is good in your life, when blessings are in your life. Evaluate your love, look at your love, based on uh, what you do when the blessings are on you, what you choose, right? You, when you have lots of options on a Sunday morning, when you have lots of options in your life, it will show you what you love. When you have lots of blessings, lots of opportunities, it will prove to you, show you what you love. Blessings are not always a good thing. Sometimes blessings are just a mirror of your own heart and what you desire and what you really, really want. Because when you have the opportunity to pursue those things, you pursue them. Yeah, blessings will show you what you love, but flames, hardships, difficulties will form your love, will form your love. It's when you have nothing, when you have nothing in your life but God alone, that you suddenly realize how wonderful it is to have God in your life. And in and, and, and that moment of difficulty, your love is formed and fashioned and God is shaping your love and even forming your faith and deepening your faith and strengthening your faith. Not through the blessings though, but through the difficulties, through the flames. So blessings show your love. They'll just show what's there. But difficulties will form your love. Let's kind of think about, think about it through the, 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 the life here, the contrast we have here between Abram and Lot. But, but to start out, before we get to the real contrast, I want to work our way to that. First off, I just want to make a note here that, once again, the promise has a problem. God's promise to Abraham, once again, has a problem. Abraham has returned from Egypt. You remember that from last week. He's returned from Egypt, but now he's returned with abundance, with blessing. Being in Egypt actually has increased his property. And not just his property, but it's also increased Lot's property with him. Uh, Yahweh, even though Abram was kind of turning away from Yahweh in a way last week and, and relying on his own understanding and his own strength, Yahweh still has blessed Abram. And now Abram returns to the promised land with more than he had before. And this creates a problem. Did you see that? Because the land cannot hold or handle all of Abram's property. Abraham had many sheep, many camels, uh, much wealth, and so did Lot as well. And land was limited. 
And now there was a problem. Now, once again, the land was in question. The land of the promise was in question, again, because it looked like it couldn't provide for all of Abram's needs. Remember, this is what happened last week in Genesis 12, verse 10. And what did Abram do when the land couldn't quite hold and handle all of his needs? He ran away to Egypt because God's provisions weren't sufficient enough, right? But now, once again, the promise has a problem. It's the same thing. The promise has a problem, but there's a difference this time. There's a difference this time. The man who left Egypt is not the same man who went into Egypt. Abram has been transformed since going down to Egypt. He is a different person. God in his wisdom has already begun to sanctify Abram in his life. And even though maybe Abram is early on in his walk of faith... You can already begin to see fruits of God's wise dealings with Abram. And there's an encouragement for you. Even in your young faith, God will already be producing fruit in his wise way and in his wise plan. Abram's already beginning to bear some fruit. And I want to make a a few notes here. And my outline is just basically a few observations about how Abram's faith is growing. A few uh, observations about how Abram's faith is growing now. Be careful here. His faith is nowhere near complete. He is not, he is not at the, the final maturity, the perfected maturity that he has in a glorified state. And he's not even in a final maturity that he will have by the end of his life. But his faith is already growing. He's already different and he's already changed. And I want to make some observations about that. The first observation is I want you to notice Yahweh's hand is stronger than it looks. And this is a kind of a first observation to note about the, the growth in Abram's faith. Now, your faith grows, believe it or not, as you begin to understand who your God is. And you begin to learn about him. And, and not just learn about him to fill up the the, the database of your mind, but you, you learn about him in a way that transforms your life. You learn about him in, in such a way that you begin to lean on him more. Learning turns to leading. That is the sign of a growing faith. You are leaning into God, the God that you are learning of. And as your faith grows, you will quickly begin to realize that God doesn't need or require everything to be going well in your life to still be pursuing his sanctifying work in you at all. He, as a matter of fact, you could almost say, if anything, God prefers to use hardships, trials, difficulties, moments of tension to actually work on and form your Faith, And this is what we see in Abraham, or Abram at this point. And in God's wisdom, in God's wisdom actually, in, in our life, uh, God usually uses the opposite situation to produce an opposite effect in our life. Maybe that doesn't make a lot of sense. To, using the word opposite twice maybe isn't helpful. But God uses one circumstance, a maybe difficult circumstance, to produce the opposite uh, outcome in our life. God uses uh, blessings to bring down the proud. God uses difficulties and trials to strengthen the faith of his people, to, to bless them internally. God, God kind of performs the opposite through our circumstance, and this is what we see in Abram. And, and just to make this point, notice verse 2, Abram returns from Egypt very rich. Literally, I love it, 
I love Hebrew. Very heavy. Very heavy. He's very heavy in livestock and heavy in silver and heavy in gold. He is rich. Hebrew speaks about things in very picturesque language, doesn't it? He is, he is heavy because of God's power and because of God's purposes in his life that even though he has gone to Egypt, God is still determined to bless Abram and Abram leaves Egypt heavier than when he went down there. And actually there's an intentional contrast here because 12 verse 10 said the famine was very heavy in the land and therefore Abram went and ran away to Egypt. But notice a heavy famine actually produces a heavy blessing in Abram's life. If you were to use the parallel there between the two language, right? This is how God often works. He uses a difficult situation to work a very opposite effect in the hearts and the minds of his people. Here we see it's actually a material blessing. The threats of God's promise, threats of God's favor, threats of God's provision actually serve as a platform for God to show his favor and his promises and his sufficiency more than any other time. Heavy famine produces heavy provision. And once again, uh, here we see in Abram that this produces a material blessing, but I'm going to tell you, that that's not what I want you to focus on. I want you just to focus on the way our God works. Because this is exactly what the New Testament talks about too when it says trials are good for you. James 1 verse 2 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials because you know something about your God and the way he works. That the testing of your faith, the trial of your faith, brings about something good. It brings about perseverance. And the perseverance... Uh, when it has its perfect work, it results in a perfected, completing, uh, lacking nothing state in your heart and in your life. Notice, a trial, difficult as it may seem, in God's way of working things, works the exact opposite outcome in your life. This seems like a bad situation, a difficult situation. Well, God is working in this difficult situation to produce the opposite and a good effect in your life. He's, per, he's pursuing perseverance in his people. He's pursuing maturity in his people. And therefore, the people that know their God, what do they do? They rejoice because they have the suspicion that he is up to something. Because God's provisions are always sufficient. And that is the kind of heart and faith that he is seeking. And, and even in the way we're, we're looking at this... <laughs> Of course, God's always working on the inner person, the inner man. Sometimes, uh, based on my own, my own wonderful proverb that I already shared with you, right? Uh, blessings, external blessings, aren't always the best thing for your faith either, are they? Right? They might actually cause worse things to happen. So we, we hope that God's actually producing something internal and not just external through our difficult situations, right? That should be our prayer. Lord, help me to grow internally for the better because of this outward difficult circumstance that's in my life. Do what you like to do with my faith. And look at even how Abram's faith grows back there in Genesis 13. Uh, now, as the quality and the goodness of God's promises, God's provisions are threatened once again, notice Abram doesn't do what he did before. He doesn't have a suspicion of God or his promises, but he has a suspicion that God must be up to something good because God's provisions are 
perfect are sufficient for all of your needs. And this, of course, leads to another observation I want to make about this passage in connection with Abram's young and growing faith. Think about this. Faith in Yahweh's hand can free you from your grip. Faith in Yahweh's hand frees your grip. Now, let me try to explain that a little bit. What is the what is this different suspicion that Abram has of God? It's, it's not a doubting in God. It's a, it's a suspicion of belief and hope in God. That even when God's promises are threatened, that means God is still sufficient and working something better for you in the long run. It's not a suspicion of God, but a suspicion, you could say it this way, of your problems. This problem appears to be a problem, but when I have faith in God, actually I should be suspicious suspicious of my problems, not of God. That this isn't working for my ill, for my hurt, for my for 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 my disfavor, but this is working for my good. You should have a suspicion of your favor, uh, your problems. This problem, you should say, is not outside of God's power. Therefore, I need not panic or tightly grab to my comforts or grab onto control if I hold on to God by faith. You should be suspicious of your problem. Notice there is a problem here, right? And the problem is, it's ironic, right? The problem comes from God's abundant blessing, and this produces this strife that happens between Abram and Lot. Notice that. And that results in a strife throughout the family, throughout the, the, whole, the whole clan of Abram. Not only, are, not only is Abram and Lot in strife, but also the herdsmen of both of these men are also in strife, in conflict. They're fighting. Now, once again, the background here is that these men are heavy in livestock. And what do you need when you're heavy in livestock? You need grass to roam. And apparently there's a shortage of grass even in the good seasons of the Negev uh, to support both of these men who are now heavy in livestock. And not only that, did you notice also that in verse 7 it says the Canaanite and the Perzites were still and now in the land, which means they probably had already the best land to themselves, and that's why Abram and Lot were stuck down in the southern region, the drier region, and there was a shortage of good grass. So this really was probably a fighting over water rights. They're fighting over good grazing land, and this is causing a lot of tension because your, your financials, your future... Your security is all wrapped up in whether this cow dies or lives. And this cow will die if it doesn't have water. So you get a little bit feisty when you don't have uh, the water that you need. And there's nothing like, there's nothing like family blessing to bring a family together, is there? There, There's nothing like money to really just bring the family together in this joyful time of tension around the will. Let the reader understand, right? Right? This, is, this causes problems. Blessing causes problems. And we see this right here in the life of Abram. And remember, uh, our outer circumstances often produce the exact opposite effect inside of us. Notice Abram's uh, had, a, had a certain effect. But before to get to Abram, just, just notice just notice the effect that the outer blessing had on Lot that we already begin to see, right? He had been blessed abundantly because he was connected to Abram. And what did that reveal in his heart? Strife, anger, greed. 
That's what blessings showed off in Lot's heart. Because these men are fighting. But notice, Abram is a different man. Once again, let's do a, a parallel, a contrast between Abram before Egypt. We could say B.E. and A.E. Before Egypt and after Egypt. This is uh, the timeline that not many people use. But we'll, we'll use this timeline for about 30 seconds right here. Okay, Abram before Egypt, what does he do? When uh, danger threatens him, what does he do? He took things into his own hand, right? He, he said, hey, I can sin right now. Because the ends justifies the means, right? Sinning is justified by its end result. I need to take control of my life and protect myself and get some protection in my life because I need to live. Sin is justified by survival. But now there's a very different Abram that we see here. Notice there's a freeness to Abram. There's a generosity to him. There's a willingness even to be mistreated in a way to pursue what is good and right and to obey God. Verse 8, Abram says, Please let there be no strife between me and you. Verse 9, Is not the whole land before you, Lot? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Notice the generosity of Abram. Now remember, Abram is the head of his clan, the head of his family. If anything, what could Abram have said? What could Abram have done? Now listen here, Lot. I'm kind of the reason we're all here. I'm I'm kind of the the person on whom God's blessing and favor has come. I'm kind of like the head honcho in this clan thing. So uh, how about you go over there, and I'll stay over here. You get away from me. You go over there, or you go over there, but I'm going to be right here. I'm going to go left, and you go right. He, He could have said it that way, right? But instead, notice what he does, because he holds God by faith and trusts in God's provision despite his outer circumstance. He is able to say freely and generously to Lot, choose whatever you want. God is good enough for me. Isn't that interesting? He he is able to be a peacemaker because his sufficiency is in God. He he knows God will be faithful to him. Because God has shown himself to be faithful. And therefore, he can, he can pursue right actions that are not always so easy. He can pursue obedience that is not always so simple because he has a view of God that's bigger. God is sufficient for me. Therefore, I can handle whatever I am given in this life. Regardless of how hard or how difficult it is, God will be enough for me. And, then, and notice also, he, he's able to be a wise man too, right? Uh, what would have happened if he would have said, hey, hey, Lot, you go left, I'll go right? Well, Lot would have probably used this for another reason to be angry at Abram and blame him for all of his problems. I'm not saying problems are coming. I might be, but I'm just saying Lot would have used this to create more contention. But notice, Abram is able to be freely generous because his sufficiency is in God. And there's a lesson for us in that, isn't there? He is fully convinced He is more convinced now that Yahweh's hand uh, is able to fulfill his promises. And therefore, he can live a generous and obedient life. And because of this, he doesn't have to sin by holding on to his rights, uh, by holding on to his pride, uh, by holding on to control in a situation. He doesn't have to sin that way because God is sufficient for him, even in difficult situations. And, and what, does this, what does this look like in application? Uh, when do you know things have really started to change in you? 
When do you know that you are truly being transformed from the inside out by your faith in God and by his sanctification in your life? When you are content with less. You're willing to do the harder things now to obey God. You are willing to humble yourself before others. Maybe your parents or a brother or sister or your friends. You're willing to humble yourself before them and take responsibility for a problem that you're having. And you're willing to do all of this because your right relationship with God is more valuable to you than your present control of your circumstances and your your pride. It's more valuable to be in a right relationship with God because you know He will take care of you and being in a right relationship with God is better than anything else, any outer circumstance. But that leads us to another observation that we can make um, here. And, And this is in connection to Abram's growing faith. It might take a little bit of time to kind of understand this point, but but listen to this. Yahweh's hand always gets his way in the end. This is another observation I want to make. Yahweh's hand always gets his way in the end. Now, practically, obedience, the, the ordinary daily kind of obedience, your relationships with the people in your home, for example, ordinary obedience can actually require a good bit of trust in God, can't it? Just basic daily obedience. It takes a lot of trust in God, actually. It takes a lot of trust in God, actually, to humble yourself before your parents or, or your siblings. It takes a lot of trust in God in your life to actually be content with less in your life. It takes a lot of trust in God, actually, to deny yourself, uh, kill your own sin, and pursue Christ's likeness. It takes a lot of trust in God. It takes a lot of trust in God to humble your will and your worry under the belief that God's purposes and God's blessings are better than anything you can accomplish in your own life. It it, it actually takes a lot of trust in God to believe in God's promises, God's blessings when you obey him. Because obedience doesn't always instantly result in the best outcomes for you. Obedience is always easier in the long run, but in the short run, in the short game, obedience is always harder, and it takes trust in God to obey in the short term. Are you willing to believe that in your life today? Are you willing to believe in God today in the nitty-gritty, ordinary little ways God has given you to obey Him? Are you willing to believe that God's way is best? Are you willing to believe that God's way, God's obedience, is the route to true and lasting joy in your life? Are you willing to pursue the path of humility before uh, God and men? Are you willing to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him with your siblings and the remote control? Are you willing to put off lust, put off anger and malice and doubt and put on love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control? Are you willing to do all of that? That takes a lot of trust in God, a lot of reliance on God saying his way will ultimately be worth it. Basic obedience takes faith. It takes faith in God to believe two things, right? That first, that God's way is right. That this way, following God in obedience, will actually bring me joy, actually bring me satisfaction. 
And it also takes faith to believe that God is able as well. It's not just believing that that God's way is right, but also that God is able to work all things out for good to those who love him and demonstrate their love for him in their ordinary obedience. That he's able to bring his will to pass when he makes these promises to those who love him and obey him. And, And I want you to see this as well. Just look here once again in Genesis 13. How do we see this? This idea of of God's way always getting the way in the end. God's hand always gets the way in the end. Look Look at how, in Genesis 13, God gets his way. Lot goes right. I mean, I mean, we're looking from above at a map, right? And you're looking down at, at your Bible, and, and perhaps here, over here you could say, is the promised land over here on the left page. And over here on the right is this beautiful thing called the Jordan Valley. And Lot is looking from Bethel down from the heights of Bethel, and he's able to see all of the Jordan Valley. Um, it's, this is before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, at least. Uh, this is, this is, there wasn't always the Dead Sea in this region. This used to be, according to um, verse 10 here, this used to be New Eden. This used to be a better Egypt. Everybody wanted to go to the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was so green and pleasant. I don't know if you've ever been in an airplane before, but uh, you can tell. As soon as you cross over uh, kind of like uh, the Rockies, when you're going from uh, Chicago to uh, California, you, you can tell that you've crossed over the Rockies because suddenly you're in a wasteland where there's nothing green, but you can see little slivers of green, and that's wherever the rivers are. And you say, oh, there must be a river over there. And if you were to be able to see the, uh, the San Joaquin Valley from above, which is impossible to see because of all the smog, but if you were able to see the valley, you would say, hey, most of this looks like dead ground, except for that little sliver there where there is a river, Right? And then that's what the, the valley was back then in the day. And you could see it. It was filled with greenery. And Lot, from the heights of Bethel with Abram, looks and sees that great valley. And he chooses that. Lot goes right. But then what do we see in verses 14 and 16? God's sovereignty and his promises actually are not threatened at all by Lot's choice. Because God actually gave Abram everything Lot didn't take. And that, in the long run, was a much better deal. Notice this, God's sovereignty was never threatened by Abram's uh, generous living by faith. Not at all. Verse 14 says, Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your seed forever. Notice God gets his way in the end. And actually God's blessing is, is actually seen here in, in, in ways that are not presently understandable perhaps. And, and there's some application you could make as well to this. Uh, God's blessings are never threatened by your obedience. Not, not at all. Actually, they are found in your obedience. That's where God's blessings are found, even though it doesn't appear uh, initially, like that's where blessings are going to come. But also another lesson you could pull out from this is uh, sinners, sinners who pride themselves on choosing their own way and having their own will, uh, shouldn't be so proud of what their will chooses. 
because they should actually be horrified. Because, because actually, their choice, following after what seems good in the moment, is actually uh, the beginning of the very judgment of God in humbling them. Uh, sinners should not be proud of their free will. They should be horrified by their free will because it is actually an expression of God's judgment because God, once again, always gets his way. But let's look at a, a final observation to make here. A final observation connected to this idea of God's uh, growing of Abram's faith. Think about this. The growing faith will have its contrasts. Now, now just... Those words maybe make no sense to you, so just write them down. The growing faith will have its contrasts. Every time, the growing faith will have its contrasts. It, it, it is always a good idea, and particularly at this moment of a message, to remind you of something. We are not the point. Uh, our blessedness is not the point. Uh, that's not the point at all. God's ultimate purpose in everything isn't just the favorable position of you or me or our blessing, but his, his ultimate purpose that he's pursuing is his own glory. His own glory. And not just in your eyes. Uh, God is ultimately pursuing his own glory in the heavenly places. He's, he's ultimately working things in your life so that angels in heaven will praise his name for his wisdom in saving a sinner and transforming a sinner like you. We see this. We see this in, in Ephesians. We see our salvation is not about us at all, but it's actually about the glory of God. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the spiritual, uh, in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then three times in chapter 1, it says this again and again, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. That is the ultimate purpose that God is blessing us at all. And notice where that praise is really, is really pointed to. Paul in chapter 3 of Ephesians says, uh, he's doing all of this so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Get this in your head, and this will save you from a lot of grief. God's ultimate priorities in sanctifying you is not your happiness, but his glory and the praise of his glory. So that, so that God gets glory from saving and sanctifying sinners like you, and like me. It's always helpful to remember those things. And this leads us back to Genesis 13. Now, let me just kind of just make a, a general statement here. What, what is the way, what, we, we, if we were to say one of God's favorite ways of getting glory from us this way? It's through contrast. It's through having two different people walking in the same kind of life, and one, through love and obedience to God, shows the glory of God, and the other one shows the glory of God through sinful choices. It's, it's through making a contrast of, this is what sinners look like without God, glory be to God. 
And this is what sinners look like with God. Glory, greater glory be to God, right? That's how God seeks his glory in us. He, he shows the riches of himself on display in the glorious ways he humbles and saves sinners. It's always through a clear contrast. And, and as you go through scripture, you'll see this. Especially in Genesis, you'll see a theme running throughout it all, right? There's a contrast. There's, there's the line of the promise, and there's the line of the present. The line of the promise and the line of the present. I'm going to seek the promise, but I'm going to seek the present. God gets glory from both of them, but particularly from the ones that seek his promises, because God's promises are proved sufficient, and God gets more glory. As you grow in your faith, you will separate. You will be different. And you will give God glory in that way. And you might even separate from, not necessarily unbelievers, but from other believers. God will get glory. Look at the good work that God has done in that individual by his own goodness. Let us praise him for that. There's a contrast that grows. And, and this morning, just in the rest of our time, I want, I want to just show you this contrast. And this contrast that we first see in Genesis here is a, is a contrast between Abram and Lot. It is a contrast for the glory of God. And it shows God's glory in sanctifying Abram. What is the contrast that we see? Well, if we were to look at the final result of their faith, we could describe their faith in in, in these ways. Abram's faith in its final form is fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. Abram is so fully convinced that God is able to do what he's promised that he can walk in the hardest path trusting completely in God that he can do whatever he wants and that his promises to me in that valley of difficulty are sufficient. I can sacrifice my son and I'm fully convinced that God will raise him from the dead if he so chooses. But at the end of Lot's life, what is Lot's faith? What does Lot's faith look like? He is fully convinced that my good, my best interest depends solely on my cunning, my wisdom, my skill. And so I have to choose what's best for me always first. I need to, to grab what's good now because my good is totally tied up in whatever I can grab right now. That is Abram or Lot's total faith at the end. And that provides an amazing contrast between these two individuals, right? One person has to have everything good right now and the other person could wait on God and trust in his reliable promises. Now, this is what I want to do, okay? We're going to start wide with the contrast, the very end of their life, and we're going to work our way all the way back to Bethel and kind of ask ourselves a question, uh, like, how did this start? How did this big contrast begin? And how did, how did Lot live such a different life than Abraham? And, and how can I be with Abraham's side of this equation? So let's just look at the contrast, right? Uh, we'll start at the very end, the very end of uh, kind of the story of Abraham, the story of Lot. We, we could look at Genesis 21, for example, and we see Abe or Abraham laughing as he is holding the promise of God in his hands. He is holding his promised son after a hundred years of waiting. And he is filled with laughter and joy in God's provision as he holds a son in his hand. That's kind of the end of Abram's life. But what do we see about the end of Lot's life? By Genesis 19, Lot is a, pardon me, drooling, drunk old man living in a cave 
committing a grave sin, a sin of incest. He is impregnating his own daughters to keep his line alive. Now, of course, he doesn't know he's doing that. His daughters are swindling him. This is how pathetic this man looks like at the end of his life. He is a drunken, drooling old man in a cave without any of his possessions. All has been vanquished in fire. So we have a a man laughing, holding God's promises, and we have another man drooling in his own foolishness. But how did Lot come to this? I'm sure from the heights of Bethel, right, Lot didn't look down and see, I see in my future a cave where I'm going to be a drooling idiot, right? No, how did did Lot come to this cave of drool? Uh, Before all was lost in this cave, Lot was... Lot was taking in the bitter consequences of his choices and his his family was also feeling the bitterness of those choices as well. Before Lot came to this cave, uh, Lot was in the city of Sodom and he was seeing his daughter's um, soon-to-be husbands openly scoffing at the wrath of God. How about that for bitter consequences, right? The, the men that I chose, or maybe they chose to be their husbands, are openly mocking at the judgment of God. That's a bitter consequence in Lot's life. And not only that, another bitter consequence that Lot is experiencing in his life is his daughters themselves are nearly raped by all of the men in the city. And Lot does this to protect himself, really. That is another bitter consequence of this man's life. And not only that, Lot's wife uh, herself in the end, proves herself to be more of a woman of Sodom than ever a a woman of the promise or the promised land. Lot's wife herself chooses rather to be judged with the city of Sodom than to seek the rescue of God and follow after the angels of the Lord. Before Lot gets to the cave, Lot is already experiencing the bitterness of his choices. And he's noticed that he's experiencing it in the in the family, especially not in himself but in his own family. But before Lot gets to these bitter consequences, another step was made. Before these bitter uh, consequences were finally felt, Lot didn't see any of them coming. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of Genesis uh, 19, Lot is sitting in the height of influence and wisdom. He is sitting at the gate of Sodom. He is sitting in the place of power. He is sitting in the place of influence in the city gate itself. This is where the leaders would sit, where the elders were were sitting. Perhaps Lot is thinking to himself this very morning. He is thinking, look at all the influence for good I have in this city of wickedness. But by the end of the day, he is a drooling, drunk man who has lost everything. So that's a little bit more understandable, but... But this is also not what Lot saw. This is also not the, the, the final turn in Lot. Before he was priding himself in his important position in Sodom, he was doing something else. He was first delighting more and more in the life and in the blessing of Sodom, in, in the life of sinners he was delighting in. Our Bible tells us in Genesis thirteen twelve that he just didn't move directly to these cities, but his tents moved closer and closer and closer and closer. He, he crept closer. And, and notice also, he, he, he didn't move down to these valleys to stay as far away as he could from these sinful cities. 
he slowly got closer and closer and closer to these sinful cities. He crept closer and closer. And perhaps he was thinking, I can get closer. It won't hurt me. It won't harm me. This won't, this won't negatively impact or influence or corrupt my family. I can live a little bit closer, a little bit closer. Look at all the blessings that will come my way the closer I get to this city. This won't impact me. This won't impact my family. And it wasn't probably that he didn't know that they were a wicked city, right? We see in verse 13, we see that this city was, was known at this time as, a, as an evil and corrupt city. What does it say? Verse 13, they were evil and they were sinners. That's, that's an emphatic way of saying they were really, really evil sinners. It's almost like saying, okay, there's sinners and then there's worse sinners. And these are the worst sinners. They must have had a reputation, but Lot didn't see that. Why did he not see that? Because all he saw was the blessing of the sinful life, the promise of the sinner's life, the ease of the sinner's life, the satisfaction of the sinner's life. Their cattle don't die. They go, they go to the grave happy and fat, not like me. Following God is hard, but the closer I get to Sodom, the easier my life gets, the more wealth I get. Why does he, why does he move so close? He is willing continually to ignore danger because of what his temporary eyes can see. That's why he keeps moving his tent closer and closer and closer to Sodom. But this isn't the the very bottom of this triangle of contrast. Before he moves his tents closer and closer to Sodom, he was looking at their lives from a distance. And this is where we get back to Genesis 13.10. Notice he lifted up his eyes and he saw from Bethel, verse 10, he was already delighting and he was already desiring. He was already looking at their present happiness, their present security, and wanting what they had. Notice verse 10, he saw and he desired something. That is language that is copy and paste right out of Genesis 3 when Eve sees the fruit and desires it, isn't it? And notice what he sees down there. He sees a well-watered land. He sees a famine-proof land. Look at this. I can control my life and escape the consequences of the, the curse. I can, I can find my own happiness. I can find a life that's better than God and better than His promises. God's promises, God's way, perhaps are holding me back from something good. If I pursue these things, I find something even more sufficient than God's promises. First, He delighted and He desired. But see that even desiring and delighting isn't the final step in the contrast. What is the real difference between Abram and what is the real difference between Lot that set them on a trajectory that's so devastating? Before he was delighting, before he was desiring, what was Lot doing? Lot was doubting. Lot was doubting the goodness and the sufficiency of the word of God and God's promises. Who was Lot leaving when he left Abram? He was leaving the man on whom God had given promises of blessings. He was even leaving tangible evidence of that blessing in himself as he had been blessed through being with Abram. But he was leaving the promises and the blessings of God when he was leaving Abraham. He he was essentially saying, I think uh, my way of blessing myself is better than God's way. 
I think God is holding out some goodness that I can pursue on my own. And he moves away from Abram and he goes where? Eastward. Which is kind of the narrator's kind of hinting way also of saying something is not right here in the state of Lot's heart. Eastward is always a picture in Genesis of something ominous. Uh, Genesis 3.24, Adam and Eve, when they are separated from God's presence, they have to go east. Genesis 4.6, uh, uh, Cain, when he, is, when he is moving away in rebellion to God's presence, he goes eastward. Uh, Genesis 11.1, when the, the men that are building the Tower of Babel do so, they first go eastward, away from what was perceived to be God's presence which apparently was westward. Notice this is a symbol. What is Lot doing? He is separating. Even, he is even rebelling. He is, he is walking away from God and God's promises and God's provisions. And that is the ultimate beginning of such a contrast, a life of contrast. It begins with doubting who God is and then delighting in what is away from God's blessing and what is away from God's promise. That, 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 that sends you on this horrifying trajectory. Let's just think about it. two lessons, one, one or two lessons. Remember this. Sin doesn't always start in the dark. Sin isn't first tempting by its ugly end. Sin is first tempting by its delightful beginning that promises you no consequences, no problems. Just because sin doesn't taste bad in the beginning does not mean it will not taste bad in the end. You should always be using the imagination of your faith to be looking towards the end. Proverbs gives you this opportunity again and again. Look to the end of your lust. Look to the end of your foolishness. Sin begins, though, with a proud heart, with a rejection of God's word, rejection of God's promise, rejection of the sufficiency of God's provision, And it pursues after delights of the senses, of the present, of the temporary. It says, let's go all in for temporary gains, even if it costs us eternal joys. But there's another lesson here. Uh, Trusting, and I hope you you saw this, trusting in the trustworthiness of God leads you on a completely different trajectory. But notice just the the practical goodness of believing in God's way. Trusting in the trustworthiness of God actually provides you peace and satisfaction in the most challenging times of your life so that you can obey and follow Him as life gets harder and harder. Why? Because you believe in God's goodness and God's trustworthiness. You are fully convinced that God is able to do what He has promised. And to to bring it back to to James 1, right? I am fully convinced that in this situation I should rejoice because God is working in a way that may appear opposite to what my circumstances tell me. And I can rejoice that God is actually pursuing something that is good for me, that is strengthening my faith from within. Simply put, you can deny yourself and you can follow him. And you trust in the trustworthiness of God. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for your word and your way. We pray that we would have eyes to see the goodness and the trustworthiness of you. Even when sins and lusts and enticements and angers demand the response of the moment. Pray that you'd give us grace and even 
give us fruit in our life right now to experience the joy of your sufficiency, even in small ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.